This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Well, happy Father's Day, everybody. Oh, yeah, we got a couple dads in the house. It's been a good year. We've had, a, uh, we've had several new fathers uh, this year at the River Church. Andy over here on the keys, he's a new dad this year, so y'all give it up for Andy. Congratulations on, you know, being a dad. <laughs> and then uh, actually as we speak, if you guys are familiar with uh, David and Mariah Cabrera here at the River Church, Mariah is in labor right now having baby McKinley or McKinsley. I got to get that right. So maybe they don't listen to podcasts. I know I didn't mess up their baby's daughter or their daughter's name. Um, but uh, anyway, so good stuff, man. What a, what a great Father's Day gift. I remember two years ago, Gideon was born just a couple days before Father's Day. And so, man, Father's Day is a, is a fun time. Uh, and it was a great Father's Day. So with that in mind, on Father's Day, I thought I would start you guys off with some good dad jokes. Huh. Yeah, all right. So here we go. And uh, I, you know they're hilarious, so you don't be afraid to laugh. Um, I'll give you the first one. What is the best time to go to the dentist? I, I'm, I'm sorry, Molly. I didn't, did I ask you to tell me the answer? 2.30. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, all right, here's another one for you. Molly, if you know it, don't tell anybody. Actually, you can. You want to come up? We got a mic. Let's play. <laughs> Um, the next one is, um, I'm reading a book about gravity. It's impossible to put down. Some of you guys knew that joke and you're like, I don't want Mike to yell at me, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. This one, I know you know this one. Why did, why did chicken coops only have two doors? Because if it had four, it'd be a chicken sedan. Wow. Somebody really thought that was funny. (laughs) And then here's my favorite, my personal favorite one. What is Beethoven's favorite fruit? Banana. Thank you. I'm getting heckled by the crowd. <laughs> oh, man. I love Father's Day. I hope that you're having a fantastic Father's Day. Um, I, I want you to know, dads in the house, that you are game changers for your kids. I want you to know that you have an incredible opportunity to be heroes to your kids and that like Ryan talked about in the worship set, most oftentimes the way your children will see their heavenly father is through the same eyes that they see their own father. And so you have a very high calling, you have a very high responsibility and my prayer is that you will always know your worth, that you will always know your importance and that we as men will always strive to be kingdom-minded men and kingdom fathers. Amen? Amen. With that in mind, we are going to be continuing through the book of James today. And if you're familiar with James, he's one of the 12 disciples, and he's also Jesus' half-brother. And so if anybody knew Jesus, it was going to be James, right? Like there's nobody that knows their siblings or that would know Jesus better than one of his own siblings. And so um, we've been kind of walking through this book kind of verse by verse. And I read a quote this week on James that was really encouraging quote. He said, the best thing about the book of James is that it's only five chapters, because it is challenging, is it not? This is a book that will challenge you. There's some books in the Bible that encourage you. 
There's some books in the Bible that, um, that let lift you up. Um, and then there's some books in the Bible that just challenge you. And James is one of those books that just has been constantly, constantly challenging you or challenging us. And the beautiful thing about walking through books of the Bible the way that we have been doing is that it makes you talk about things that normally you probably wouldn't have talked about. The thing that really stinks about walking through books of the Bible is that it makes you talk about things that normally you wouldn't have really wanted to talk about, right? And so today, James is going to challenge us on something that is always a fun thing to talk about, our money. And so today, our job is to encourage you to let the word speak to you, open our hearts, and let's see how we should respond to the things that James has to say. Because as we walk through this this part of the chapter, what we're going to see is he's going to have the harshest tone that he's had throughout this entire book so far. And not only that, but he is going to prophesy um, destruction over the rich people in this, at this time in the world. He's going to prophesy destruction over them if they don't repent. Awesome. Happy Father's Day. Right? And some of you guys are like, great, I'm not rich. <laughs> Get them, Mike. Right? Get them. <laughs> But here's the truth that we know is that even the poorest of us in this room are among the richest in the world, right? And so there's still a lot that we can take from and learn from this portion in James. So I'm just going to read through it, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it, all right? I'm in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. James says, Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Woo! (laughs) That's awesome. Amen, right? You can get amen right there. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. So as we open up this chapter, we feel super encouraged on Father's Day already, right? And you just feel it. You're like, I am so glad that I am at the River Church today. As we open it up, James begins with this challenge. He commands the people here that they should weep and that they should wail over what is coming to them. And what he's essentially saying is the way I want you to respond to what I'm about to tell you is I want you to respond to your sin in a particular way. And he says, I want you to weep from the depths of your being. I want you to experience grief and heartache and remorse. And I want you to wail. And that literally, when he says wail, he's talking about that screaming, right? You want to wail, give you an example? No, yeah, no, right? He's talking about a literal, like a outcry of pain over their sin, over this realization and regret over the way that they've been handling their finances. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm not always the best at responding to my sin in a good way. You know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever had somebody come up to you and and present to you something that you've been doing wrong? Huh? Like this morning, I tried to talk to the band about being late. They're taking too long. You would, you could not believe the way that they would talk to their preacher. They're just yelling at me like, sometimes we don't always respond to our sin in the best way, do we, guys? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing with them. But so James says, here's a way I want you to handle your sin. I want you to handle it in the right way. And, and we're going to see, you say, well, why? Why do they want 
why does James expect him to respond in a particular way? Because he's going to have several beefs with these guys. The first thing that we're going to see with them, as we look at these, these different beefs that he's going to have over them and the way they've been handling their finances and money, the overarching theme, if you look at the one strand that runs through the whole thing, is that they had become slaves to their pursuit of and their own love of money. And that's something that we see happen often in our world, right? Like uh, Seneca said, unfortunately, we esteem a man for his wealth and not his soul. Money and seeing finances and people who have a lot of money, we kind of put them up, we esteem them, we put them on a certain pedestal. And so we see where James sees what happens to these guys is that they allow money to become essentially an idol for them and the way they pursue it. And it, it tends to overcome and own them. You ever been owned by something in your life? Maybe not necessarily money or finances, but something that just owns you and does things to you and causes you to do things that you're not necessarily proud of. Well, these people, they become loves of their money. And because they become lovers of their money, they became slaves to their money. And when they did that, it caused them to do some pretty awful things. The first thing that James points out is that it causes them to be hoarders of wealth. Anybody ever seen the TV show Hoarders? <laughs> it's not pretty, is it? You walk in there, you're like, what is wrong with these people? If you look at my garage, you might think I'm a hoarder. <laughs> James says they become hoarders of wealth, and what happens is they're, because they are corrupted by their love of money, there's no point where there's enough for them. And he's not talking about hoarding as in like saving, having a good savings account, or just investing wisely. He's talking about enough will never be enough. It's in getting and getting and getting and attaining and attaining and attaining. And there's no point where there's enough where you feel like you've arrived. Like there's that famous quote by J.D. Rockefeller where the reporter asked him how much money's enough. You know the answer to that? His response was just a little bit more. You're talking about one of the richest men in the history of the world, just a little bit more. And that's what's happened to these particular people is their love of money had caused them to become hoarders of money. So instead of enjoying their wealth and being generous with their wealth, they're trying to hoard it and hoard it and hoard it. And this, if we're honest, becomes a badge of honor even in our own society, doesn't it? The man or the woman that gets up every day and is grinding, grinding, getting as much as we can, as much as we can, as much as we can. And James, instead of seeing this as a badge of honor, sees it kind of as stupidity. <laughs> he says, you're living for today instead of eternity. And at the end of the day, all your stuff's just going to rot away, right? And what we see is their love of money caused them to act selfishly in ways that we normally wouldn't act. And it causes us to twist our Priorities And James points out, I don't know if you guys caught this, but James points out that their love of money and this hoarding of money had caused them to steal from workers who had been working for them in their fields. And so literally these people are extremely rich, yet they're cheating people and stealing from people who have worked for them and earned money and earned a wage from them and they don't give it to them. James points out that this self-centered focused on their resources had caused them to become thieves. And then they begin to indulge themselves while the people around them are starving. And so James points out that while they're living large and in charge, there's people around them who are starving and dying. And he's not just talking about like living like a good life or like getting, you know, you know, going to a baseball game every once in a while or like just enjoying life, but talking about hoarding and indulging and uh, talking about over overabundance on incredible luxuries, talking about parties, private jets, right? Like indulging big time, is pursuing hedonism at the expense of people around them who are dying. The idea behind this text is that they're literally gorging themselves on their finances and their resources, enjoying life while there's people around them starving and dying. 
partly because they're not paying people <laughs> what they owe them, but then also partly because the distribution of wealth at this time in history was just kind of crazy, where you have 90% of the people in the world would be considered poor, and you got 10% who kind of own everything. Like, as an example, Rome owned half of Africa at this time, and the half of Africa that Rome owned was owned by six people. That's crazy. Imagine if the United States of America, the land in the United States of America was owned by six people. It's crazy. And so James points out to them, you who are wealthy, there's people around you who are starving and you're doing nothing for them. And in in essence, it's the same as if you were killing them. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Jewish idea, the mentality that they had at this time was that if there's a Jewish brother or sister who is starving or in need, who has no food or clothing or shelter, and you have the means and the opportunity to provide this for them and you don't, it's the same as if you took it from them. Does that make sense? It's the same as if you took it from them. And one thing we see throughout the entire book of James is this Christian responsibility to those who are less fortunate than us. And here we have this mindset of a people who are indulging themselves in incredible luxury, hoarding their assets so that they can attain. Enough is never going to be enough, caring so much about getting more and more and more and more that they're cheating people out of their hard-earned money, and then they're gorging themselves on incredible luxury, riches, and pleasures while their neighbors starve. Sounds like some awesome people, doesn't it? So what do we do with this passage, right? Like if, if we looked around the room and we took a survey in the room, I would, I could be off here, but I would bet that none of our neighbors are starving and dying because we're not providing for them. I doubt that anybody in here flew in on their private jet. And if you did, let me know because I want to ride home. <laughs> so what do we do with a passage like this where James is talking to kind of the one percenters who have all these luxuries, who, have, who are gorging themselves on their resources so much so that they're stealing from people, so much so that they're allowing people to starve around them. What do we do with this passage, right? Because this, if it, many of us could look in here, and I know we talked about maybe we're not rich, and you could probably go, how does this even apply to me here? What do I do with this? Here's what I would want to do. Here's what I want to do today kind of briefly with this. Is one, I want to look at these people and see these people who are an awful example of what a relationship with money should look like of people who have become so consumed with the pursuit of money that they became slaves to that thing that they're trying to pursue and turn their hearts against Jesus. And I want us to look at ourselves today and explore what a healthy relationship with money might look like for us as Christians and how Jesus' desire for us to use our resources in a healing way, in a healthy way to change the world around us. And this matters. This is so important because we look at verses all over the Bible. For example, Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can be a slave to two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And it finishes with this phrase, you cannot be slaves of God and money. And so what I hope for us is maybe nobody's neighbors dying because we're not providing for them. But what I hope for us is that we could have a healthy relationship with money and the resources that God has blessed us with. And so I want to look at that today. You can't be owned by both. And there's that old saying that says, if you want to know what somebody cares about, look at their bank account, right? If you looked at my bank account, you'd see a lot of (laughs) Chick-fil-A. We're supporting the family. 
a healthy relationship with money is, if I could just put it down in a, in a quick little sentence, is a healthy relationship with money is when money is something that does not own you, but yet is a powerful tool in your hands in the name of Jesus. So how do we have a healthy relationship with money? I'm going to give you three quick things. The first one is this. I think it begins with, for us as Christians, having a mind shift in the way we view money and the way we view our own money and our own resources. And that mind shift begins with understanding that what we have is actually not ours. One of the biggest struggles for Christians in general is looking at what we have and seeing our money, and it's right up here, and we look at it and we say, that's mine, I've earned it, I've worked hard for it, I own it, how dare anybody tell me what to do with it, much less God. And that, I mean, I get that, I get that we've worked hard for it, I get that, but the problem with that is all over the scriptures. Let me give you some examples. 1 Samuel 2, 7, the Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Deuteronomy 10, 14, the heavens, the heavens indeed, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Psalm 24, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Psalm 50, 12, if I were hungry, this is my favorite one, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Essentially, God is saying, I don't need to ask you for anything because everything I have is, everything you have is already mine. There's nothing that you could give me that I do not already own. Job 41, 11, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50, 10 and 11, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and everything that moves in the fields is mine. And I could keep going and going and going and going because there's so many verses in the Bible that talks about this. But the overarching theme that I want us to get is that as a Christian, our understanding, our worldview is that everything in this world belongs to God. It's his, he created it, he owns it. So whatever we have, our families, our wealth, our houses, our resources, they already belong to God. They are already a gift given to us by God. And I know what you're probably thinking, the same thing I think when I begin to read through this is, but I worked for it. I work my butt off. I own that. It's mine. I strive for it. Like, how can you tell me that it belongs to God? And, and there's no doubt that you worked hard for what you have. There's no doubt that you, like, I, I believe that. But here's what I want you to see is that he blesses your work. What I want you to see is that that work ethic that you have that enabled you to work your butt off, he gave you that work ethic. The skills that you have to do the job that you do, he gave you those skills, the opportunity to have the job that you have today, he gave you that opportunity. <laughs> and so we can boil it down and say, no, it's mine. I worked hard for it. But if you back off of it, if you play the whole picture out, what we understand is that everything we have in some way, shape, or form was given to us by a loving and kind and gracious God. And at the end of the day, it still belongs to him. And so number one, if you want to have a healthy relationship with Jesus and money, you have to understand that everything you have came from him and still belongs to him. We have to have a mind shift as Christians, understanding whose it actually is in the beginning. It's all his anyways. And along with that mind shift is actually some pretty cool things for, in essence, if, or for example, if we understand that, that God owns it all, that it's his anyways, that's actually an extremely comforting fact. 
Because what happens is he directs how we live. He directs how we spend our money. He directs what we do in our lives. And us trusting and knowing that he owns it all anyways means that we can trust in and rely on the fact that he's going to provide for you. He's going to care for you. He's going to take care of you. You know why? Because he is more able than you will ever know. Because guess what? He owns it all. (laughs) And if he owns it all, that means we can live an open-handed life where we allow him to put it there, we allow him to redistribute it, we allow him to move it around, and we trust that he's going to take care of us. Amen? Obedience becomes possible when it comes to our finances, when it comes to the way we live our lives. Obedience becomes possible because we are able to trust in his ability to provide always. And so we don't have to be scared. We don't have to worry about hoarding wealth. We don't have to worry about because we can trust that he can provide. So we have to have a mind shift as Christians. And if you're not a Christian here today, you don't have to have that belief. (laughs) There's no point. But as Christians, that is what we believe. Secondly, second thing I would say, one, you have to have a mind shift. Understand it's all his. Secondly, you've got to decide who you want to be. To have a healthy relationship with one, you've got to decide who you want to be. You have to decide that it's God's way over our way, that we're going to live an open-handed life, and you have to decide that you want your finances to be a tool of generosity. You want your finances to be a tool of generosity. As Christians, we have this cool thing where generosity gets to become is a privilege for us. And I don't think that there is nowhere do I think that in the Bible or the scriptures where the scriptures say that God expects Christians to be poor. Some of us are, some of us aren't, that, but it's neither here nor there. What I do believe when it comes to our finances is that God blesses and allows us to use that blessing that he gives us as a way to bless others around us and a way to use our resources and our money as a tool of generosity to bless those around us. Like there's this really cool thing. I was talking to, uh, you guys know Lee, who's a pastor in Ohio. We were talking about an opportunity that their church had to be a tool of generosity whenever Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, uh, back in, man, when was that? A long time ago, um, 2005, thanks. Um, and he said their church had this opportunity to use their resources as a tool of generosity to send three semi-trailers down to help victims of Hurricane Katrina and then $150,000 along with it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would consider that using your resources as a tool of generosity, don't you think? As Christians, we want our resources to be used as tools of generosity to help people in need and to build not our church, not our lives, not our kingdom, but to build the church of Jesus Christ. So that means we support missions organizations. That means we support homeless shelters. It means we help friends and families in need. It means that we use our resources to support friends who are adopting. It means that even something as simply as we tip the waitress really generously when we go out to eat, and then we invite her to church. And if you don't tip generously, don't invite her to church, or at least don't tell her that you go to this church. (laughs) You think I'm joking. (laughs) So we want our resources to be a tool of generosity. And then secondly, we want our resources and finances to be a weapon against the enemy. Because here's the really interesting thing about money is money is such a touchy subject. Like whenever I started, I'm going to talk about money today, I heard... Some of you guys get real nervous because money is such a touchy subject and we're so sensitive about it. Man, we're sensitive about it. And the reason why, one of the reasons why is because Satan uses money. One of the biggest ways Satan uses money is to put a wedge between you and God. You realize that? He, puts, he uses money to put a wedge between you and God. Like when that offering basket starts coming around, oh, I just feel the guilt coming, right? 
Some of you guys are like, no. <laughs> but here's the thing. When we shift that mindset and we begin to see our money as guides and we begin to see it as a tool of generosity and a weapon to use against the enemy, then that money isn't something that Satan uses to put a wedge between us and God. That means our money becomes a weapon that we use to kick Satan's butt. And so that means we use our money generously to support, again, missions organizations. We use our money to fight against uh, human trafficking, to fight against poverty, to use fight against suffering, and all these things that the enemy that Satan brings into our world to cause, to wreak havoc and destruction. We have the opportunity to use our resources as a way to fight back, to not be a weapon that he uses against us, but to use as a way for us to do a little butt kicking of our own. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired of Satan getting all the credit. I'm tired of the enemy winning. I'm tired of him using my money against me. I want to use my money to beat him up a little bit. So we have to decide, you have to decide that my money is going to be a tool of generosity and my money is going to be a weapon to use against the enemy. That happens when we can live open-handedly, when we own our money and our money doesn't own us. And the last thing I would say, this one's just a real pragmatic finisher You've got to be proactive with your money. It means you've got to be wise in budget. We have the Dave Ramsey class that we do here at the church when we do in a couple more months. You've got to budget wisely so that you can know what your money is doing so you can let it work for you so that you can choose where it goes instead of the other way around. Like, it's really hard to be generous if you're like, I don't actually know if I have any money in the bank. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to be generous if you do it. That's why, again, we, we pound this in. But as a church, we, we set 10% of our tithes and offering to give away. And we do that on purpose so that we can let our money be a tool of generosity, that we can use our money to fight against Satan, right? As a matter of fact, we've already been working on our next 10 for 1 project, getting ready to do in September. And if you're not familiar with 10 for 1, it's a way that we raise money to give away. And we don't raise it from you. It's money that the church has that we give away. The church gives away to people in our community, okay? It's coming up in September. And so you need to budget, prepare, be proactive about your money, and then maybe even decide as a Christian that you're going to (laughs) live below or at your means so that you have the resources to give away. you got to make sure that your intake is bigger than your outtake, your outflow, And I know some of these things might be hard and they may take some self-discipline and they may take some work, but most things worth doing are hard. And if you want your money to be a tool of generosity, if you want to be a weapon against the enemy, you've got to do some hard work to make sure that you can make it work for you. And I know discipline and all these things sound restricting and sound difficult, but are actually very freeing. There's a guy that I follow, um, his name's Jocko Wilnick, and uh, He's, he's a former Navy SEAL, and uh, he's, he's really cool guy. I read, I read his book recently called Extreme Ownership, and he talks about his, one of his big phrases is discipline equals freedom. And so what happens is we think discipline's restricting. We think disciplining ourselves, like disciplining our money or whatever, might be difficult. Well, then I can't just spend it how I want. I, if I budge, I can't do it this way. Well, his whole thing is if I discipline myself to get up at 4 o'clock every morning, you might think, well, that's hard. That's restricting. That means you've got to get up at 4 every morning. He looks at it as now I have four extra hours every day that I can do with whatever I want. That I wake up and I'm grinding and I'm telling my time what I want to do with it versus waking up and things just hitting and I got to do what the world's telling me I got to do immediately. Does that make sense? And so if we discipline ourselves, if we discipline our resources, that sets us free to use our finances in a healthy way, to have a healthy relationship with money so that we can be set free to be generous with our resources. 
And so if we want to have a healthy relationship with our resources, I would say this, it begins with a mind shift when it comes to how we view our money, how we view our resources. You've got to decide who you want to be, that your money is going to be a tool of generosity, it's going to be a weapon against Satan, and you've got to choose to be proactive so that you can be set free. And what I'd say this is that when we do that, when we get it right, a few things happen. One, the book of James doesn't hurt so bad. (laughs) Two, our lives are used by Jesus to impact the world around us and to build up his kingdom using our resources. And as a Christian, that's something that we should care deeply about. (laughs) And I'll say this, men who are in your fathers, your children are going to watch how you spend your money. They're going to see how you prioritize your money. They're going to see how you pursue your money. And what you teach them about money is going to teach them a lot about how you love Jesus, whether you're a man owned by it or not owned by your money. And I know that money is a touchy subject, right? One of the reasons why is because it has a tendency to own us. But as Christians in the wealthiest nation in human history, we bear a responsibility to understand the power of our wealth and to use our wealth responsibly. And so I'd say this, is that we have an opportunity to use our resources to glorify God, to kick a little butt, and to change the world. And usually what happens when you give kind of a money talk, although I didn't really choose to do this, is just where we were in the book of James, so blame James, not me. Usually what happens is some people get upset, which that's neither here nor there, but then the other thing that happens is the tithes and offering goes up for a few weeks because people feel guilty. <laughs> and if you're feeling that today, I want to set you free from that. I don't, I don't, that's not what I want. Matter of fact, keep your money if you feel guilty. <laughs> it's okay. But my hope is that you wouldn't be upset, you wouldn't feel guilty, but that what would happen is that just talking about this for a few minutes this morning would cause you to examine your heart's posture towards money. And that you, it would cause you to ask yourself, am I doing this God's way? Because that verse in Matthew is so true and rings so true in our hearts. You're going to be owned by something. Now, what is it? God or money? What are you going to be a slave to? And I, I hope that your answer is, yes, I'm doing things God's way. Like, that, that's awesome. Like, fantastic. But it, if it's not... My prayer for you is that you could truly have that tough conversation with yourself, with your family, with whoever, and that you could begin that work of that heart shift that we can view finances the way Jesus calls us to. And and I hope that the tools we've even talked about just a little bit today would be helpful in making that shift, that we could be a church and we could be a people who live an open-handed life when it comes to our finances, that we trust God with the resources that he's given us and that we can, as a church, change the world together. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for um, that you give us resources, God. Thank you that you bless us the way that you do. Lord, we are... We are fortunate, even in the place, the place that we live in the world, the way that you've blessed us, God, it's, it's an amazing thing. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to have a healthy view of our finances, that you would help us to have a healthy view of really money and all those complicated things, and that we would use our resources to make a difference in this world, God. That's who we want to be. That's what we want. We want our money to be a tool of generosity. We want... 
We want it to be a weapon against the enemy. And so God, I pray that you would shift our hearts in that direction, that you would help us to see our resources the way you see them and that we could use them to change the world in Jesus' name to glorify God, to glorify you in all that we do, God. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.